Here we're starting here at the top of Kufchav Chetamun Aleph. The Gemara has continued to discuss the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, again, we had uh, two lists of items. One that is permissible to use or to move on Shabbat. The other one that is impermissible to move on Shabbat. Uh, both lists seem unnecessary because the items are obvious what you can move and what you can't move. So the Gemara is going to find the Chiddush in each one of these lists. So yesterday we spent time on the first list, which is the things that are permissible on Shabbat. Like we said before, they're both lists of subpar performance. Just happens to be the first list when you do a subpar performance and it succeeds. Bid the it works. And the second list is items that when you do a subpar performance, it does not work. And because it doesn't work, then it remains muksa because it's something that you cannot use or utilize on Shabbat. The Gemara here is going to go through that second list and ask what the question is about. Isn't it obvious? And what is the Kiddush in the second list? So, one cannot engage in Tevel on Shabbat, obviously, because you can't use it. You can't utilize it. You can't be mafrish chumot and masrot on Shabbat. And therefore, it is muksa. So Pshita, when it says, Lutricha, the Tevel Tvul Mi Dirabanan. Talking about that is Tevel Mi Dirabanan, Kigom, Shizar O, Atzitz Shainan Akuf. He planted it inside of a pot that did not have a hole in it. If it doesn't have a hole in it, the pot, then it's not considered to be Mechuber the Karka. If it's not Mechuber the Karka, Technically, there is no din of Chumat Masrot because they are din of Tuliyaba Aretz. Tuliyaba Aretz means you gotta be in the ground. You gotta be inside the Aretz. If you're not, then there's no Tevel mi de Oraita mina Torah. There's only Tevel mi de Rabbanan. And so that's what the Gemara says. The Mishnah's Chiddush here is that we're talking about Tevel mi de Rabbanan. And that's Tevel mi de Rabbanan you cannot engage with on Shabbat. It's considered to be Muksit. Below Maiser Rishon, Shinonitla Chumato. This is the mirror image of what we saw in the Mishnah in the first list. First list says Maiser Rishon, Shinit there we were talking about Maisi Rishon that had Shumat Maaser that was removed from it. The Gemara says if Shumat Maaser is removed from Maisi Rishon, it's Chulin. What's the Chiddush? So the Gemara said the Chiddush is that you don't have to be Mafrish Chumagdola. If the Levi jumped the gun and took the Maisi Rishon early, then he only has to be Mafrish Chumat Maaser. He does not have to be Mafrish Chumagdola. So that was the Chiddush over here. Now we have Velo Maisi Rishon Shalonitla Chumato. A Maisi Rishon that doesn't have Chumat Maaser removed from it is Asur. It's a Mita Abidei Shemaim to eat it. Chumat Maaser is one of the things that are serious in terms of their punishment if you don't take them off. So of course, if it doesn't have its Chumat Maaser removed from it, that this Maaser Rishon is not usable on Shabbat. So what's the question? That's why it says, Pshita, Lotzricha, Shikdimo, Bikri. That Levi took it early, but he didn't take it as early as last time. In the first case in the Mishnah, he took it so early that he took it Bishibolim. He took it while it was sitting in the stocks. When he took it in the stocks, it was already Chayav in Maaser, but yet to be Chayav in in Truma. When he does that, the din is that he has to give Trumat Maser from his Maiserishon, but does not have to give Trumat Gdola. Over here is the alternative, which is that he took it later. He took it after it was already Chayav in Shuma. Not only was it Chayav in Maser, it's Chayav in Shuma, but the Levi still took it before the Kohen. He jumped the gun and he took it before the Kohen, as we discussed before, in terms of the order of the Matnot that have to be taken off of the Tua. The first one is Bikurim. The second one is Trumat Gdola. Trumat Gdola is 2%. Benoni, 150th, that has to be removed from the Tua. Then you take off Maiserishon, which is 10%. And then Shumat Maser, which is 10% of that 10%. So it will turn out that the Levi gets 9.8% because 2% has been removed before he gets his Maiserishon. And then he'll give to the Gawain, out of that 9.8%, he'll give 0.98, 10% of Maiserishon. Now, if he jumps the gun, then he's going to end up getting a full 10% instead of the 
9.8%. So on that, not only he has to give the Trumat Maser, but he has to give the Trumat Gidola that he owes. Because by jumping the gun, he got more Maser Rishon, and he now has to be Mafrish off. The 2% that should come off for the Trumat Gidola, he'll have to give to the Kohen, in addition to the Trumat Maser that he will end up giving to the coin. Because if he is not mafrish, the Trumagdola, then the Levi is actually a beneficiary of taking the Maiser Rishon before the Trumagdola. And that is because if they were to take off the Trumagdola first, then their 2% would be gone, 98% left. He gets 10% of that for the Maiser Rishon. That's 9.8%. Of that, he has to give 10% to the Kohen, which is 0.98, which means that it results in Levi having 8.82%. That's what he will get from the totality of the Tvua. On the other hand, if he jumps the gun and takes the Maiserishon before the Trumagadola has been separated, and what ends up happening is the Maiserishon turns out to be 10% because there's no 2% taken off beforehand. The Trumat Maaser that he will give will end up being 1%. So that is more Trumat Maaser than he would otherwise give if he had just taken it after the Trumagadola. But nevertheless, after he takes his 10%, minus the 1% he gets to the Godain, he nets 9% of the total Tvua. So he actually benefits by 0.18% by jumping the gun and taking it before the Kohen. So in order to rectify that, he has to take off Trumat Gedola from this Maise Rishon. Taking off 2% from the Maise Rishon ends up being point. 2%, and then after that's taken off, that 0.2%, now he has only 9.8%, and then he'll have the 0.98 that he normally gives to the Kohen for the Trumat Maser. So the combination of the 0.98 and the 0.2 that he gives to the Kohen, that results in 1.18 going to the Kohen, which is the normal reduction that the Levi takes on his Maser Rishon in order to end up with 8.82%. So by forcing him to remove the Trumat Gedola now, we rectify or return to the Kohen what he would have gotten had the Kohen taken his 2% up front. Now it turns out that it will net out to be the same thing as if he had taken it after the fact. They took off Chumat Maser from it, but he did not take off Chumat Gedola. I would have thought like Rapapa queried Abaye at the bottom of the previous Amud, Rapapa says to Abaye, what's the difference he takes it in the Shibalim? Let him take it later. He also only has to give Chumat Maser. Kamash Malam, Kiddushani Le Abaye. No, the answer is no, like Abai taught Rapapa. What did Abai teach Rapapa? There are two psukim. There's one psuk that says, That sounds like you give Truma Gdola no matter what. The other psuk says, That only Trumat Maser do you give, not Truma Gdola. How do I reconcile between those two psukim? Talking about whether it's before, Miruach Akri, before the Gemar Malach for Truma. There you only have to give Trumat Maser, not or Hadid Gun, that's after already there was Gemar Malacha for Chuma. In that case, I'm going to have to give Chuma Maaser plus Chuma Gedola. So here in this case, where he gave Chuma Maaser, you still can't eat the Maaserishon because you didn't give the Chuma Gedola. And because of that, it's, you can't use it on Shabbat. That were not redeemed, you can't use. Gemara says, Pshita. What's even the question here? If you didn't redeem it, it's Kodesh. So why would you be able to be using it on Shabbat anyway? What was the Havamina that you could use it? They were redeemed, but they were not redeemed properly. Maser, where he exchanged it onto an Asimon, not the Asimon for those old enough to know that went into the phones here in Israel, but an Asimon, as Rashi says over here, it's a coin without a tzura. It's a coin that does not have an image on it. And the problem is, that you take up 
the literal meaning of the pasuk is that you'll bundle the money and take it up to Yerushalayim. The Gemara Darshan's on the word of Itzarta, Tavar Sheshvotsura, a minted coin, a coin that has an image on it, and that is what you can use for Pidyon. If it doesn't have a Tsura on it, then you cannot use it for Pidyon. So here he used a coin, a blank coin, or blank metal, and that does not work in terms of redemption of Maisir Sheni. Hekdesh, Shechilu Gabe Karka. case of Hekdesh is a case where he redeemed it onto land. That you have to give the Kesef, it come low. This puzzle doesn't exist. As Tosvel points out, that sometimes the Gemara will take pieces and parts of a puzzle, put it together, and kind of embed the drush inside the pasuk. So they're quoting you what seems close to the pasuk, but it's not exactly the pasuk that is found. The point being that when it comes to Hagdesh, it can only be redeemed on what we call Kesef and Shavet Kesef, onto money or money equivalents. Things that are excluded from that, there are three items that are excluded, and it's the same things that are excluded for certain other items, like for instance, paying Kefel for Shavuot. They all have this, what we call Kalal Upratu Kalal, that eliminates, number one, Karka, Shtarot, and Avadim. Karka, because it's land. Avadim, because they are compared to land. And Shtarot, because they have no inherent value. Because the way that the Kalaupratukla works is that we have a general principle that says redeem it, another general principle that says redeem it, in between it says money. So the Gemara says, what's unique about the property of money? It's something that has value, and it's mitteltel. It's not real property, it's movable property, and it has inherent value. So the things that are excluded from that are land, which is real property. You can't move it. It's not mitteltel. And the other thing that's excluded are shtarot, which are documents, banknotes, anything that has no inherent value, but through what's written in the shtar, there's obligations that are generated. That shtar has no inherent value and therefore cannot be used as a redemptive tool. Abadim are just because they're hukash the karkot. Over here, he did a subpar performance of Pijom. Again, before in the first list, he did a subpar performance of Pijom because he gave the Karen, but he didn't give the Chomash. There we say, Bidyevit, it works. Over here, he did a subpar performance in terms of Pijom, and it doesn't work, and that's why it'll be Muksa on Shabbat. Right? Velo at the Luf can't have the Luf. We saw that was some sort of legume. The argument in the Mishnah is the Luf, which is something that's not eaten by people, and it's not eaten by generally by domesticated animals. In one exception, the Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon says, oh, but the ravens, rich people feed it to the ravens, and therefore it is allowed. The Gemara is not going to discuss this. You can carry around chatzav. Chatzav is a type of grass or vegetation that the Gemara quotes it in other places. Yoshua, when they came into the land, they use this plant in order to divide up the properties, the geographic boundaries between a different shvatim. He planted this chatzav because it has very deep roots. It doesn't spread and grows upward. So it's a great way to demarcate a boundary or a border. Yoshua used it for that purpose, but it's feed. It's grass feed, and it's used machal tzvim. It's a feed for a tzvi for deer. And mustard seed, because it's feed for the pigeons or for the doves. You can even carry broken shards of glass. Because it is feed for ostriches. You have to take bundles of twigs. Because that's food for elephants. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel answers, 
Peeling Lushkrikhe. Ostriches are common. Elephants are not common. I'm not exactly sure what ostriches he was seeing, but he obviously saw more ostriches in his life than elephants. But it's interesting that he notes that that's the difference between them about how common these animals are to be found. Amar Amemar. Amemar says, This is only true if he owns the ostriches. He can't just say, I'm carrying this around to feed to the ostriches when he doesn't own ostriches. And where it says, I'm Ravashi Lemeimer, that doesn't make so much sense. El de Kamerle Rabbi Notan, the Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. Then what was the question that Rabbi Notan posed to Rabbi Shimon Gamliel? Shimon Gamliel says, you can keep these shards, these broken pieces of glass, because they can be fed to the ostriches. Long comes Rabbi Notan and says, well, if you're right, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, you should be able to keep these bundles of twigs because the elephants eat them. Now, if you qualify Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel's statement, as does a Maymar, and say, that's only if he owns an ostrich, then what's Rabbi Natan's question? If he owns an elephant, he's right, yes. You could eat the twigs. Then it's not really a question. And so therefore, Rav Ashi rejects this qualification of a Maymar. If he owns an elephant, you're right. It's clear here that they're not telling you that you own them. It's just because such animals would eat these items, then everybody gets this dispensation. Since there are those people who would feed it to their animals, then they're not muksa for anybody, even if you don't own those animals. So that's the one qualification that Rabbi Shimon Gamliel gave, that it has to be something that's found. It's not something that is far-fetched or impossible that almost nobody sees. But it's something that doesn't have to be that everybody owns them. It could be unique to a certain class of people to a certain part of society, but as long as there are people who own these things, then that's fine. Everybody is then granted the permission to move these things around and not to be muksa. And that's what the Gemara now says. Amar Abaye, Shimon Gamliel, Virabi Shimon, Virabi Shmo, Rabbi Kriva, Kulo, Svirlu, Koliso, Benem Lachim Heim. They all have this principle that all Jews are princes. All have that stature, standing as a prince, and therefore it has halakhic ramifications. And what is that? Rabbi Shimon Gamliel Hadamran. Shimon is what we just said. Shimon Gamliel, he said it in our mission, and now he said it again, which is that the glass shards are feed for the ostriches. In the Mishnah, he says, oh, you can carry on the loof because it's feed for the ravens. Who brings up ravens? Only wealthy people, rich people. So why is it then allowed for every lay person to move these items around? The answer is that every person is of that stature, of that standard, they could be qualified to be a prince. And because of that, even though currently they're not prince, currently they're not wealthy and bring up ravens, nevertheless, they have that qualification and therefore they can move it on Shabbat. So that's Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. Rabbi Shimon, we bumped into Early in Mesechto, which is Tnan. That princes can put rose oil onto their wounds. That Mishnah is discussing putting on items on your body that look like you are performing some sort of refuah, medicinal anointment. The Mishnah makes a basic qualification, which is if the item is utilized both for medicine and for non-medicinal purposes, then it's fine to use on Shabbat because when you drink it, when you put it on your body, when you do anything, interact with it, it's not clear that you're doing it for medicinal reasons because people would use it even in situations where it wasn't needed for some sort of sickness or some sort of wound. On the other hand, if it's something that's only used and is unique to medicinal purposes or it was something that you drink, something that you put on a wound only in those situations, then you can't use it on Shabbat because then it's obvious that you're doing it for rifuah. So here the Mishnah states, that if you're using about this rose oil, 
Rose oil is something that's only used by very wealthy individuals, by princes. So a prince would put on this rose oil even on a weekday. Therefore, on Shabbat, if he puts it onto his wound, it's not clear that he's using it for medicinal purposes because he might otherwise put it on even if he didn't have a wound. On the other hand, for a lay person to put it on, he would only put on such oil if he had a wound. Because it's so expensive, because it's so uncommon, the only way a lay person would use this is because he needed it for medicinal purposes. And therefore, it's obvious on Shabbat that if he's putting this oil on, that he's doing it for medicinal purposes. To that, Rabbi Shimon says, Kol Yisrael that every Jew has a qualification of being a prince. And since every Jew is a prince, when he puts it on on Shabbat, it's quote-unquote not obvious that he's doing it for refuah purposes. But since he's qualified to be on the level of the prince, then he might put it on a weekday also. So it happens to be it's Shabbat today, and he's putting it on. And because of that, he says you can put the Shem and Verit on on Shabbat. Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Diva, where do we find them? The Tanya, Reish, you no Shimbo Elef Maneh. He owed a thousand, hundreds, that's a hundred thousand shekel that he owes, and they come to collect for him. Balavush, Mi'il, Mechagura, or Itztala, but Kuf Maneh. And he's wearing this beautiful cloak, this beautiful coat, that's worth a hundred Maneh, which is a hundred times a hundred, it's ten thousand shekel. So he's wearing this beautiful cloak that's worth ten thousand shekel. He owes a hundred thousand shekel. So you know what the creditors want to do? They want him to sell the cloak and pay off some of the outstanding loans that he has. So Mavshitinoto, they strip him down. They buy him a cloak that is qualified proper for his social standing. And with the difference of the money between this very expensive cloak and what his normal dress wear is, they'll get some of the money out to pay back the creditors. Every Jew is ra'ui for that cloak. That cloak, which is extremely expensive, would only be worn by the very wealthy or by a king. This person, you could downgrade his cloak and he really wouldn't be out of place. It wouldn't be societally improper, the cloak that you got from him. Nevertheless, Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Kiva say, every Jew has that standing of a prince and therefore this cloak, even though it's very expensive, is ra'ui to him. Based on that, they would say you can't take it off of him, sell it, and downgrade his cloak. That cloak is his cloak, and he is entitled to wear it. So that's what Abayi said, that these three instances show us these Tanaim all have that same view, that even though Jew is a layperson, is a regular individual, nevertheless, within the eyes of Allah, he's given that status of a prince, of a ben melech. So these are bundles of these items. If he prepared them ahead of time to use as feed for the animal, then you can carry them on Shabbat because they're not muksa. They're useful. You can have utility on Shabbat. You've designated them for something that's useful on Shabbat. If not, then you can't carry them because the default status of these items is that they are either used for firewood, they're used for muksa, they are out of your realm on Shabbat. So we discussed this before, and muksa you always have to look at what the default status is, and then how do you remove that default status. For these bundles of these items, these are not normally items that you would interact with on Shabbat, so therefore the default status of these items is that they are muksa. So in order to remove the shame muksa, you have to have prepared them, or had in mind to use them for the behema, for feed for the animal. If you can carry the bundle with one hand, then they are Mutar the Tautalam, then they're mutar to engage with them on Shabbat. Beshtei Yedai Masur the Tautalam. Mishayon Gamliel says, we have to define the default status by the size of the bundle. The smaller bundles that you can carry in one hand, the reason they are smaller bundles is because there are things that you're going to engage with on a regular basis. 
There are probably things that you have in mind to use for feed for your animals on Shabbat. On the other hand, if it's a large bundle where it takes two hands to pick it up, that's something already that you're mekatsam in adat, something that you put out of mind because it's not something that you're going to use on a daily basis. It's something that you're going to store away or put outside of your normal realm. So here, Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel says, you have to look at the default based on the size of the object. If it's a size of storage, then that's something that's muksa by default on Shabbat. If it's a size that you would engage with on a regular basis, that's something that is not muksa on Shabbat. Right now, we have a list of items in the Gemara, things that we're not so familiar with, that the Gemara is talking about and trying to determine what the status of these items are. So we have Chavilei Si'ah, Seturiah, Ezov, Vikoranit. So these are three items. Ezov is a hyssop, Koranit is thyme or origanium. These are three items. These bundles of these items, Hichnisam Neitzim, if he brought them in to use his firewood, Ain Mr. Pigpen Bishabbat. Then you're not allowed to use them or utilize them on Shabbat. Machal Bahima, if you brought them in as animal feed, Mr. Pigman Bishabbat, then you can use them as Shabbat. Vikotem biyad veochel. You can pick them off with your hand and eat them. Vajloyitom bigli. But you can't cut them with a utensil. And that when you want to break off pieces of this to either give as animal feed or for whatever you need it for. You have to do it by hand. You have to crack it off, pick it off, and not do it in a manner that uses a kli. Because kotim bikli, we talked about before, one of the problems is that if you're cutting them down to size, that that might be a problem of makib patish, might be a problem of uvdu That's the way you normally do it on a weekday, so we want you to do at least a little different, to do some sort of shinoi on Shabbat. Umolel ve'ochel. And then you can roll them in your hands and then eat them. In order to shell them, and to make them edible, you can roll them in your fingers to remove the shell or any of the impurities and eat them. As long as you don't use some sort of utensil, as long as you don't do a lot, meaning you don't do a large quantity in a kli. That's Rabbi Yehuda's position. You can only do this rolling at the tips of your fingers. You can't do a lot in your hand. In the palm of your hand, the way you would do on a weekday. So here you see that there's this issue of we want a little bit of shinoi. We want to do it differently than you do on a weekday. Part of the differentiation is that we want you to do it for what your needs are on Shabbat. We don't want you doing it for storage. We don't want you doing it in quantities that you would normally do it on Nilchol. So Rabbi Yehuda says the difference is between doing it in your hand versus doing it with a kli. The Chachamim narrowed that down and said, even within your hand, you're going to do it with the tips of your fingers that you can roll it, because that will minimize the quantities that you can do, which would only be for what you need right away, versus doing a whole palm of your hand where you could do a larger quantity, and you might have left over, you might do more. That's just a quantity that we don't want you engaging with on Shabbat. Yeah, but there the default status is for feed, meaning those items are not used for firewood. So therefore the default status there is feed. Again, this is all about the default. Those items by default are animal feed, the items that we mentioned before, and therefore when you bring them in, since they are machal behemah, they by definition won't be muksa. Even if you don't have a behemah, it will not be muksa. Over here you have items that are ambiguous. They can be used for firewood, they can be used for animal feed. So when they're ambiguous, you set the tone of that item when you bring them in. You'll determine what the default status of this item is, and by doing that, it'll either be muksa or not muksa. If you define it for behemah, even if you don't have a behemah, it will not be muksa. But if you define it for itzim, that's something that you can't engage with on Shabbat, then it will be muksa. So this is true also of the amita, the pigame, and the sharmine tavlin. 
So Gemara asks, my Amita, what is this Amita? Ninia. So Rashi says Ninia is Minta, is mint. Others, the Jastro, I think, says it's bishop's weed. Sia, which we bumped into before, which I told you was this Seturia. Amre Yehuda, what is this? Tzatre. The definition of Tzatre is some sort of savory, it could be Penny Royal, or I saw some that want to suggest that it's Zatar. Azov is Avrata, which is Hyssop. Koranit is Kornita, Shema. Where it says Kornita, what they know in Aramaic is Kornita. Where it says, Vahahahu damalu man bayi Kornita, vishtakach Kashi. When we see somebody who was selling Kornita, and when we got there, we saw that it was Kashi. Ella, Sia, this Sia is Tzatre, Ezob is Evrata, and Kornita is Kashi. Kashi is savory, something like thyme, something in that family. So all of these items have that status where they're somewhat ambiguous in terms of their uses, usage. And therefore, if you use them for itzim, then they're going to be muksa. If you use them for machal beima or for spices, then they're going to be fine to move or utilize on Shabbat. Itmar, basar maliach mutar letautolo bishabbat. Salted meat you can carry on Shabbat. Basar tafel or basar tafuach. Basar tafel means plain meat, meat that is not salted, or tafuach, which means that it's swollen, meat that is swollen up. Ravuna amar mutar the tautolo. Ravuna says you can move it around on Shabbat. Ravchista amar asur the tautolo. Ravuna amar mutar the tautolo. You can carry it around. Vaha Ravuna talmid the Rav havo. Ravuna is a student of Rav. Virav Rabbi Yehuda and Rav holds like Rabbi Yehuda. Tietle muksa. There's a problem with muksa. What are you going to do? With with this meat that is either swollen or not salted. Now remember, in their day, if the meat is not salted, there is no refrigeration. So meat that's not salted is not going to be preserved. It's basically going to go bad. So what are you going to do with this meat? You can't cook it on Shabbat. That's not an option. What are your options that are left for you to deal with this meat? So it seems to me that it's muksa, and if it's muksa, Ravuna being a Talmud of Rav, and Rav who passes like Rabbi Yehuda, there is muksa on Shabbat, should be problematic. Where it says, no, but muksal achila, sever like Rabbi Yehuda. But muksal atautel, sever like Rabbi Shimon. So this is a division, a very interesting division. Comes up in Beitzah as well. Tosafot promotes this shita in Beitzah as well. Which is the concept that you can have something that is muksa for eating, but not muksa to carry around. That achila, engaging in achila, is a higher form of interaction with the item. And there be maybe times where it's a sore for you to eat it, because it's muksa. But it may not be a sore for you to move it around. So this is like this middle stage or interim type of muksa where it's okay for you to move it, but it's not okay for you to eat it. Muksa in terms of eating, because there's nothing you can do with it. You can't make it edible, quote unquote. On the other hand, in terms of tilto, you can carry it around. The Rav Chista really say you can't carry it around. Went to there was this duck meat that was out in the sun, and it being out in the sun, it's going to go bad. So they moved the duck meat out from the sun into the shade. They did that because there would have been a huge loss of money if we didn't bring the meat in from the sun into the shade. It would have gone bad. So if that's the case, wait a minute, that's raw meat. That's a case of raw meat, not salted, and yet Rav Chista is allowing them to move it from the sun into the shade. That means that it's not muksa. Yet over here, by Basar Tavel, he's saying, can't move it. When it says, Shani Bar Abzo, the Chazid Umto. Bar Abzo is different because you can eat it like carpaccio. You can eat it as a raw piece of meat. You can slice it thin and you can eat it raw. So since you can eat it raw, it's interesting, the word umtza is used in a number of different contexts in the Gemara. 
Here it means raw meat. Other places it means roasted directly on the fire. It means a very, very fresh piece of meat. And it can be fresh because it's raw or because it was stuck right in the coals and roasted. But over here it means a raw piece of meat. And you can eat it as raw, carpaccio on Shabbat. And therefore it's not considered to be muksa. So here the Gemara is differentiating between duck meat that will be eaten raw versus basar tafel that would not be eaten raw. And the difference being that basar maliach, that salted meat, again, that wasn't cooked, that you might eat raw. But the meat that is unsalted, that meat you would not eat on Shabbat, and therefore it's muksa according to Rav Chista. Tosafot makes an interesting point over here. He says this duck meat we know is not salted because they asked the question of Chista about meat that wasn't salted. And he's slicing off a nice slice of duck meat, raw duck meat, and then eating it. He says, wait a minute, that meat wasn't salted. How's it kosher? Where is it kosher salt? Is because after the animal shechta, we put salt on it to draw all the blood out of the meat. So he says, wait, if this meat's not salted, how is it kosher to eat? So Tosavot concludes over here, he says, Mikan rayo, the varim shalo mutar. Blood that is embedded inside of the meat is not a sewer. The only thing that is a sewer is blood that has come out. Meaning that whether it's through the shkita or whether it's the cutting of the aver, there's blood that's on the surface, blood that's outside, that blood is problematic. But blood that is still embedded or inside the aver, that blood is not problematic and that can be eaten. And his rayo is here. I have raw duck meat, I'm slicing into it, never salted, and yet, you're allowed to eat it. So there is a proof that damai varim, that is embedded inside of the meat, that you don't have to worry about. Salted fish, you can carry on, it's not muksa and Shabbat again, because you, you would eat it. The raw meat of a fish that is not salted, that you cannot carry around. So no sushi. Basar, ben tafel, ben maliach, mutar l'tautolo. On the other hand, meat, whether it is salted or not salted, there you're allowed to carry it around. Basar Tafel bin Maliach sounds like the position of Rav Huna that we saw before, that you are mutar l'tautolo. Tanar banan. Mitautolin et ha'atzamot. Mitautolin et ha'atzamot. Mibnei shu ma'achal l'klavim. You're allowed to carry on bones on Shabbat because they are dog food. And we're talking about bones that did not have meat on them coming into Shabbat. If it had meat on it, then it would be ra'oi just because of the meat that was on them. But here you're talking about plain bones that don't have any meat on them. So technically, for in terms of human consumption, they're not useful on Shabbat. But they're still not muksa because they have value in terms of the dogs. Basar tafuach. This basar tafuach. That's what Rashi said before. With this basar tafuach, basar tafel, mipneshu machal dechaya. It's food that you would give to an animal, a non-domesticated animal. Mayim miglin. Water that was left exposed overnight, which you're not allowed to drink because we're afraid that a snake deposited its venom in it. You can carry that around on Shabbat. Mipneshu in lechatul. You can give it to a cat. It's very interesting. The Gemara here thinks that cats were immune to the venom of the snake because they eat snakes. Since they eat snakes, then they're also protected from the venom. I don't know if the Gemara is referring literally to a cat here or maybe the mongoose. The mongoose eat the snakes and kill the snakes, and so maybe that's what they're referring to over here. Shemuel says it's too risky. You're right that maybe the cats can drink it, but I wouldn't keep my gulim around because somebody might drink from it, and the danger is too high. Therefore, don't keep it around. Spill it out. Right away. All right. Now, in terms of when the Gemara here makes the statement about Tanurban Dan Guliach Mutar LeTaltolo, Doctor Felasur LeTaltolo, that the salted fish you're allowed to carry and the non-salted fish you're not allowed to carry, who is that said in? Whose position is that said in? Is that said in the position of Rabbi Shimon, who says there's no muksa on Shabbat, or is that said in the position of Rabbi Yehuda, who says that there is muksa on Shabbat? So Tosafot discusses this issue, as well as Rashi seems to note. He says, "Why is Dag Tafel?" Why is a dog that is not salted, why is it no good on Shabbat? Okay, 
a human being can't eat it, but an animal could eat it. So if an animal can eat it, we just saw before, if the bones are roly for the kelev, that's fine. If it's roly, the basar tafel or tafuach is good for the chaya, that's fine to carry on Shabbat. It's not muksa. So why don't you say the same thing about dam tafel? So Rashi says, the the boom. Uklavim lav He wouldn't throw it to the dogs. So Rashi says the difference here is that the salted fish would be eaten raw, like it is. The unsalted fish is not eaten raw, and it's not given to animals. It's not something that you would think about giving to your animals. It's not in that world of giving that food to the animals, and therefore not in the realm of Shabbat. Tosafot over here says, you can see that in the parentheses, but the marshal takes out of the Gemara, Rabbi Shimon. The fact that you're allowed to take Basar Tafel, which is later on in the Gemara, which we said before, the bones for the Klavim, and Basar Tafuach for the Chaya, that means that it is Rabbi Shimon. He says, I don't understand. If Basar Tafel can be carried around because it's Rabbi Shimon, then the Dag Tafel should also be carried around if it's Rabbi Shimon. The Dag Tafel in a with the Klavim. The same answer that Rashi gave, which is that unsalted fish is different than unsalted meat. Unsalted meat, animals eat. Unsalted fish is not even animal food. And therefore, it's not within the realm of Shabbat. It's Muksa on Shabbat. Inami, he gives you an alternative. So that's one alternative explaining this whole Brayta according to... Rabbi Shimon. The other alternative is to explain this according to Rabbi Yehuda. Namik Rabbi Yehuda, Atya, the dog tafel the klavim, even though dogs would eat it, asur the tautolo, komide the chazalinish, lomikatsa the klavim. Anything that a human being could still eat, they don't put it in the world of the behemah. On the other hand, baser tafel mutar the tautolo, Rabbi Yehuda, bibnei shu machal That is food for the animal. That's not something that I guess a human being would have in mind anymore to eat. The unsalted fish, he still has in mind to eat, and he assumes that he'll be able to keep it or maintain it and then eat it later. He doesn't think of it as animal food. On the other hand, the basar tafuach, which is this basar, Rashi calls it misriach. It's already swelling. It's already going bad. So that meat is not going to be fit for human consumption anymore. There you clearly have in mind to give it to behemah, and that's why it's mutar going to Yehuda on Shabbat, because it's moved into the world of behemah and is no longer ro'oi for human consumption. So it's a big difference in the way you read this Gemara. If you read it according to Rabbi Shimon, who thinks there's no muksa, according to Rabbi Yehuda, who there is muksa, and each time you're going to have to explain the difference between why unsalted fish is different than unsalted meat. Because in the case of unsalted meat, we say it's not muksa. In the case of the unsalted fish, we say that it is muksa. So you have to explain to me the difference between these two items. Next Mishnah. This is a Mishnah that we quoted earlier on the Mesechta. It has to do with mevatel kli mehechano. It's taking a kli out of its primary purpose on Shabbat and allowing it to be used by items that are muksa. And by doing that, you're now going to change the status of the kli or put it into a position where you may not be able to carry it anymore on Shabbat. So here, kofin et asal difnei afrochim, you can turn over a basket in front of the chicks, kidei sheya alu v'yardu, in order that they can climb up and get down, to give them a step, like a stepping stool, them to get up to wherever they have to go or get down. Tarnagolet shebarcha, if you have a chicken that escaped, ran away, dochinata achdikanes, you can bump it, push it, until it comes back in to where it was supposed to be. Well, bumping it or pushing it, when we say dochet, it's from behind. You'll have to push it or encourage it to move in that direction. On the other hand, midadim. Midadim is to encourage to move along or push along, but it's different than dochet. Dochet is from behind. Midadim, Rashi says, you give it side support. You're helping to balance it to give it more support. So midadin agalin usayachin, you can do this for calves and for foals on Shabbat who are just learning to walk, they have difficulty walking, you can help give them side support and help them to move along. You can't pick them up, you can't lift them off the ground because they're muksa, 
But you can support them and then let them walk on their own or help them to walk on their own. Isha madadad bna. And similarly, a woman can do this for their child. Their child who is just beginning to walk or starting to walk, she doesn't carry the child, but she can support the child and give the child support to help the child walk on their own. That's only true when the child lifts one foot and puts the other foot down. Meaning that they shift their weight from one side to the other, one foot to the other. But if she's helping him and he's dragging his feet on the ground, then that's no longer called midada, that's called carrying. So that's, he says, there's the, the line over from which you have the differentiation between carrying and midada, which is to help encourage to move along. That line is the difference between whether he, he balances his weight from foot to foot or he keeps all his weight on his feet. And then when his mother is pulling him, he's not walking. She's just dragging him and his feet are on the floor. So that doesn't qualify and that's considered to be carrying. They're all problems of moksa, except for the last piece of the Mishnah, which is because of the carrying aspect of it. So what ends up happening is that you're allowed to engage with these animals, even though these animals are moksa, and you can't pick them up, you can't do tiltal with them. Nevertheless, you're allowed to engage with them to help them to walk. How far you can engage with them is dependent on which animal. We saw the difference between the chicken and the calves and the poles and the child. So they're defining for each one of them. Now, there's a separate issue which is once you're involved in the world of Tiltul, like we saw before, then they already lead into Hotzah. So that Isser Muksa leads us into a separate problem of Nosei, that you're carrying them. Now by the animals carrying them, could be a problem not only of just carrying from location to location, but carrying because it's Muksa. By the child, obviously the problem is not Muksa. The child is not Muksa, but the problem is just simply the carrying. So Mishnah is talking about Muksa, but because of the nature of the Muksa it spoke about, it went on to a sidebar about caring as well with the child because it's the same nature of the engagement of the mother with the child that you're dealing with the animals. Most of the times it's the mother that's with the child, but that would be true of the father as well, correct? The animal that falls into a water channel. Can bring pillows, mattresses, blankets, and put it under it to raise it above the water litter. If it gets out, it gets out. You can't carry it out because it's muksa. You can't lift the animal out. On the other hand, the animal's in danger here. It's in a water channel. It could get drowned. It's in a bad position. What you're allowed to do is throw these items in there to give it a stepping stone, a way to get out of the channel. An animal that falls into a water channel, you feed it and you take care of it in its place. So that it doesn't die. You can take care of it, you can feed it. But what you can't do is take items and throw them in in order to help it to get out. That's not a problem. Depends on the situation. If you can maintain the animal in its current position, you can feed it and keep it there without it being endangered, fine. Then we say opt for that. On the other hand, if it's impossible to keep the animal there, to feed it, keep it alive, then we offer you the alternative, which is to throw those items in in order to allow the animal to climb out. in. If you have the possibility of keeping it alive there, then fine. This is the problem here, is that you These karim when you brought them into Shabbat, were not made to be stepping stones. Once they get soaked in the water and they get dropped down and the animal is on top of them, then you're, first of all, utilizing it for something that they were not primarily indicated for on Shabbat. And there's other possibilities that you're now making them muksa. And you won't be able to engage with them anymore. How can you do that on Shabbat? There's an Iser Drabanan 
of Mavatel Klimeichano. Rashi over here says something interesting. Rashi says, why is it called Mavatel Klimeichano? What's the problem on Shabbat? Once he puts them underneath the animal, he can't carry them anymore. It's as if you are taking down a binyan. It's as if you're destroying something midirabanan. Because here you're destroying the kli from its primary purpose. By making it muksa, it's equivalent of breaking a binyan. You are undermining, you are destroying the kli's primary purpose. That's what Rashi says over here. If you go back to Dachmem Gimel, Rashi says that the problem of Mavata Klima Yechano is Binyan. It's called Boneh. Because why is it called Boneh? Because when you engage with the Kli and then you make it Muksa, you can't move it anymore. By making it Muksa and not being able to move it anymore, it's now stuck in place. Being stuck in place is the equivalent of Binyan. Binyan is that you build something and then it's stationary, it stays there. So by making this Kli Muksa, you're now doing something akin to Boneh. So Rashi over here calls it Soter. Over there he calls Boneh. Tosafot back on Mem Gimonav notes that Rashi has this Stira that when he describes sometimes his Mavato Klimechano as Soter and sometimes he describes it as Binyan. Now the Gwara says, I have a problem here. I have an Isu Durabanan of Matel Klimechano and you're doing an Isu, you're violating an Isu Durabanan on Shabbat in order to help this animal. So it says, Savar Mavato Klimechano Durabanan Tsar Balei Chaim Doraito Mavato Klimechano is only an Isu Durabanan. Tsar Balei Chaim, this animal that's in the water channel that you can't take care of over there, if you don't get it out, it's going to suffer. That's suffering. Tzar Baal Echaim is in Din Doraito. Va'ati Doraito v'dachi Dorabonon. So this Din Doraito of Tzar Baal Echaim comes and overrides the Isser Dorabonon of Mavato Klimei Chano. So first of all, this Gemara is very interesting and does have huge Nafkamino Do'alocha. The first thing is, in terms of Nafkamino Do'alocha, the Gemara in Bob on Daf Lamed Bet Amud Aleph, Lamed Bet Amud Bet, and then into Lamed Gimel Amud Aleph, discusses whether it's Tzar Balei Chaim is Doraito or Dirabanan. The Gemara there has a machloket amongst the Tanoanaim, the Amoraim, as to whether it's Tzar Balei Chaim is a Din Min Torah or is a Din Mid Dirabanan. Here the Gemara says it's Tam. Tzar Balei Chaim Doraita, without any dissenting opinion. Based on this, many of the Poskim Paskin, Tzar Balei Chaim Doraita, the Rif here, the Rosh, Many of the Rishonim, Paskin, Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita, based on our Gemara here in Shabbat, which says, Tam, Gemara gives a din with regards to Shabbat, Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita, and therefore the Loch is Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita. The Rambam is a little unclear about what his Shita is, but the majority of Rishonim take this Gemara as to be the Sakaloch of the guards to Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita. The biggest problem that you have with Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita is, what is the source? Where in the Torah does it say that Tzar Bali Chaim is Doraita? The Gemara here says it without any source. The Gemara in Bab Metziah does the same thing. The Gemara in Bab Metziah is arguing in a theoretical sense. It says, is it Doraita or is it Dorabanan? The Gemara never asks, well, if it is Doraita, where do you know it from? The Gemara takes it as a given that Tsar Bali Chaim Doraita, we know where it's from. But nobody knows where it's from. Nobody has the source. One of the sources that's quoted is the Rashi over here. This Rashi says, Shinemar, the Pasuk says, Azov Tazov Imo. Azov Tazov Imo, this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha says that if an animal is overloaded, then you have to go to the rescue of the animal of the person and help him to unload the animal. Why do you have to unload the animal? So Rashid says, Dorish time in the crow. The sum are Dorish, the reason of the Pasuk. Mishum Tsar Balechaim, Beelumitsiot. You go to Elumitsiot, by the way, what Rashi just said doesn't exist there. None of the opinions say that the reason of Zopta Zomimod that Tsar Balechaim Dorish is because they're Dorish time in the crow. That doesn't exist there. The Khatam Sofer points this out that Rashi quotes something that doesn't exist in the Gemara and Bobumitsia. But you see that Rashi here has this source for Tsar Balechaim Dorish being Azopta Zomimod. That the fact that you have to help to unload the animal 
And to take that tsar off the animal is an indication that there is tsar bali chayim mideoraita. It's true even based on the Gemara there. The Gemara there, there's two dinim. There's one din here in Mishpatim. There's another din about loading an animal, helping to load an animal. Over there, the Gemara differentiates between the two and gives emphasis to the unloading of an animal versus the loading of the animal. So once again, from that you see that the emphasis on unloading the animal of the Tsar Bali Chaim is something that gives precedence and therefore is a determining factor halachically. And that's how they say that this is a source, mide oraita. Now the Reb Kiva Eger in Boba Metzia on this comments that he thinks that it's not a isur, that's our Balachim Doraita, but it's only a mitzvah to say. It's a Zob to Zobimo, which is a mitzvah to say. And therefore, Tzar Balachim can any be, be any better than the source. And therefore, that the mitzvah of Tzar Balachim is not an isur, but rather an assay. It's a positive commandment to take care of the animals to ensure that they're not in pain. But if you don't do that, you're only in violation of isur assay, not in violation of alav. The Shuta Rabbaz goes even one step further and says it's a din Doraita that's not an assay and not alav. It's a din min a Torah but doesn't come into one of the normal categories of being a positive commandment or a negative commandment. It's simply a directive from the Torah. Directive from the Torah is to try to ensure that animals don't have pain. The Me'iri in Boba Metziah brings as the source for Tzar Balechaim Doraita, Lo Tachsom Shor Bidisho. You're not allowed to muzzle an animal when it is working. Because, why is that? What's the reason that you can't be Chosem Shor Bidisho? The answer is, Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita. So the Meiri sees that as the source for Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita. In Mor Nevuchim, the Rambam brings, with regards to Hashkocha Pratit, he says that with regards to human beings, Hashem has not only Hashkocha on the human race as a whole, he also has Hashkocha on every individual. That when it comes to animals, there's no Hashkocha on every animal, but it's by category, by species. And then the Ambam continues and says, despite that fact, that there's still a restriction against mistreating the animals. And the source from that is Bilam. That when Bilam hits his donkey, it says there, Why did you hit the donkey? The fact that the Malach says to him, why are you hitting the donkey? is an indication that when he hit the donkey, he did something wrong. That he, he was too forceful. That he killed the donkey. And that was wrong. Based on that, the Mornavuchim, the Rambam sees that as the source for Tsar Balichayim Deoraita. Others, like the Sefer Yom HaTruah in Rosh Hashanah and Chavzayin Amad Aleph, sees as the source. The Gemara deals with something that, Chasa Torah Mamonam Shil Yisrael. The Torah is always worried about the possessions of a Jew, and he doesn't want the Jewish possessions to be lost. The Gemara actually brings two sources for that. One source they bring is from Nigaim. The fact that, why do we wait for the Kohen? You don't bring the Kohen right away, so that you can take the Klicheris out of the house. Why do you take the Klicheris out of the house? Because once they become Tamei, they're not useful. So therefore we see that Torah Chazal, Mamonam Shal Yisrael. The other place we see that is by Meimeriva. Parshat Chukat, it says over there that, that you will take the water out of the rock and then you will feed the Eida and their animals. And later on, after he gets the water out, they end up feeding their animals and themselves. So we see from there that the Torah was chasa amomanam shel Yisrael. That's what the Gemara says. The Sefer Yom Chua says, well, you have two sources. Why do the sources argue? He says, because one source believes that this din of Shkita Deirave Biram teaches you Tzar Bali Chaim Doraita. That the Torah was chasa on the behemoth. Not only did they give water for the humans that were there in the Midbar, it also gave water for the animals. The fact that it gave water for animals is an indication of a din Doraita of Tzar Bali Chaim. The Chatham Sofer, it's very interesting, the Chatham Sofer has a number of chuvot 
with regards to Tsar Bali Chaim Doraita. And over there he differentiates between if an animal was used for the purposes of human beings, there's no din of Tsar Bali Chaim Doraita. But if it's not used for human beings' needs, then there is a din of Tsar Bali Chaim Doraita. And then he says something extremely interesting. He says that even though, in general, when you're using it for human needs, there would not be a din of Tsar Bali Chaim. If the Torah asserts that, or even the Rabbanon asser that type of action, the Tsar Bali Chaim comes back. So that, for instance, So even though you're using the animal for your needs, nevertheless, since the Torah asserted you to muzzle the animal, you'll be in violation of Tsar Bali Chaim Doraita, because the Torah took away your right to use it in this way. And he says it even with the din der Rabbanon. That you could be in violation of a din doraita even because, because the Rabbanan forfeited your right to act in certain ways. Therefore, you no longer are granted permission to use the animal in this way. And that would be Tsar Balei Chaim de Oraita. It's very interesting, Chatham Sofer. But then he brings as a source for Tsar Balei Chaim de Oraita, it says, Rachamav al-Komasav. That Hashem has mercy on all of his creation. And that is the source for Tsar Balei Chaim de Oraita, according to the Chatham Sofer. There are others like, there's a ritva in Boba Metziah, who suggests that it's Allah of the Moshe Messinai. He quotes it as the day of Rashi. Very difficult, as Rashi over here does not say that. But the Ritva in Boba Metziah quotes that as the day of Rashi, that it's a din of Allah, the Moshe, Misinai. There are others, like the Sefer Haridim, that take what the Khatam Sofer says about Rachamav Komasav and say, therefore, it becomes a din of Allah, the Bidrachav, to emulate God. If Hashem has Rachamav Komasav, then there's a demand on us of Allah, the Bidrachav, to emulate God. And therefore, there is a requirement on us to be Merachim Allah, Behemot. The Ramban, the Ramban ala Torah, and Parak Aleph Pasuk Chavtet, when it talks about man is given the right to to work the animals, to utilize the animals for his own purposes, the Ramban over there says something very interesting. He says, even later on, when sin happens in a time of Noah, that man was then granted permission to eat the animals. Nevertheless, there it still says, It says you may not eat the blood, because the blood is the nefesh. So even though you were granted permission to eat the animals, you're not granted carte blanche permission. You can only eat the meat, the inanimate parts of the object. You can't eat the nefesh, which is the blood. He allowed you to eat the body of something that doesn't speak, animals. After they're dead. Low nefesh atzma, but not the life force of the animal. It's probably labor minachai, that's the blood. That's why you can't eat any of those items. tam shchita. This is the reason for shchita, the album says. Umash amru That's what the Rambam says, that the reason that you have to not eat, you don't eat an animal's blood, you don't eat an animal ever minachai, and that's why you have shkita, because shkita is something that is merachim on the animal, it's a way to treat the animal properly. It is the issue of tsar balechayim deoraita. And there the Rambam goes on, the Ramban goes on to say that that's what the bracha of ala shkita is. That's why you make a bracha on shkita, is because of that nature of the mitzvah. And it's interesting, the Chatham Sofer also brings that down to explain the nature of the brach of Shechita based on this Ramban. Again, the Gemara never gives you a source for that Tzar Ba'alei is Doraita. You see the Rishonim and Echonim trying to find a place for it. The last thing I would suggest is something that I heard in the name of Rav Asher Weiss with regards to the sheet of the Chatham Sofer says this, didn't hear it directly with Tzar Ba'alei although I've heard others that he did say it with Tzar Ba'alei as well, which is that certain times the Torah gives you overwhelming evidence of something. They give you mitzvah after mitzvah, and then if you take the sum total of all those mitzvot, then you know what the Torah wants, the real dat Torah. Then you get learn something that was dat Torah. So if I take all these items together and add them up, 
I would see that the Torah cares about Tzar Balichayim. Why? Because I have so many mitzvot. I have Lotachsom Shorbidishel. I have Otov et Bino. Lotishchatu Biyom Echad. I have the dinner of Kansipur. I have the dinner of Shechita. I have all these items that if I take them all together, if I add them all up and put them together, they give you a picture, they give you a sense that the Torah cares about Tzar Balichayim. And based on that, what's our Balichaim Doraita? It's because that Torah, that's what the Torah, the message the Torah is giving you. If we take all of this together, the picture or the information that the Torah is giving you is one that Tsar Balichaim Doraita. And that's why there's no source. There is no direct source for Tsar Balichaim. Rather, Tsar Balichaim is something that comes out, that emanates from the different mitzvot that are associated with animals in the Torah. He says it in other areas, but here I would say you could apply it for. Tzar Bali Chaim as well. Alright, the uh, Gemara continues here. Tanagolet Shebarcha. If you have a chicken that ran away, Dochin in Madadin Lo. But the chicken, you're allowed to push it back into where it's supposed to be, but you can't direct it. You can't hold it from its sides. So Tanina Lahadda Darabanan. We have support for this. Madadin Behema Chaya Ve'of. Person can direct animals and birds. Bechatzer. Of a low at but not the chicken. Tarnagolit, my time ago. Why can't you do it with the chicken? Because Rashi says it floats itself. It lifts itself off the ground. If you put your hands under the wings of the chicken, the chicken will tend to either hold itself up, pull its body back, in such a way that you'll end up carrying the animal instead of just helping it to move along. So because of the nature of the chicken where it gets itself off the ground, therefore we don't allow you to put hands on the sides and to direct it because you're going to end up carrying it that way. Others suggest that the possibility is that it sometimes it fights so much that you're going to end up having some of the wings pull away from it. It's going to do some damage to the animal in a way that would be problematic. Tani Chado, we have one bright that says, So these animals, you're allowed to help to move in the Chatzar, but the woman can even do with her child, even Rishut Rabim. The difference being between animals and the child is that we have this a din of when is it a din derabanan? Chai no se And because of chai no se then by the woman, even if it was shuter abim, she would end up carrying the child. Even the rabbanan agree that by human beings, we say the din of chai no se So therefore, when you're in shuter abim, even if the woman ended up carrying the child, there won't be an issue derabanan. So therefore, we allow you to do midida with the child in shuter abim, because even if it goes wrong, there won't be an issue derabanan. On the other hand, there's a machlok about animals, whether we apply chai no se and since the Rabbanan said we do not apply chaynoset to motzmo by animals, therefore in the chatzer we'll allow you to do midida, because at worst you might carry to carry them, that would only be an issue to Rabbanan because you're in the chatzer. But if you're in Rashut Rabim, we're going to let you do this midada because if you do end up carrying them, you'll be in violation of an issue do raita. So that's why the Braita lays it out, the difference between animals and a human being. But then we have another Braita that says, Inokrim beima bechayavof bechatzer, avoduchim behen. You're not allowed to lift them up, but you're allowed to push them. She consumes so they'll go in. Have That bright itself is internally problematic. Amart ain't no cream. You can't pick them up. So I would infer from not picking them up, aval diduye midadinon, that you can direct them. But then the latter half of the bright says, adarmar duchin in midadin mo. The bright there gives you the two extremes. It says you can't pick it up, but you can push it. But there is middle ground. The middle ground is this madada. 
That's his middadah. Where does it fall? If you inferred it from the first half of the Mishnah, it would sound that that is mutar. From the second half of the Mishnah, it would be asur. So what is it? So, Amar Abaye, Seifa Atan Laton or Gulet. The Seifa, which makes it sound that this pushing or helping the animal along is asur, is by a chicken. And that's what we saw before, that the chicken, you're not know how to do this middadah with. Abramai, Haimon Deshaket Ton or Gulet. One who is going to shech the chicken. The kavshinu the karei ba'ara. Make sure that its feet are firmly planted in the ground. Inami nidalahu meidal. Or on the other hand, you should pick it up. Make sure it's in the air. The dilma manachlu the tofrei ba'ara. Because if you don't do that, it might sink its claws into the ground. Vakaluhu the simanim. And cause the simanim to be ne'ekar. It's not exactly clear what's going wrong here. Whether the kavshinu ba'ara means that you bury it in the ground or you put pressure on them so that they can't be moved. But it seems to be that the fighting back the chicken, when you're going to shecht it, that when it puts its claws into the ground, somehow, whether that's because he's fighting against you, will cause a movement of the simanim when you're shechting. When you have dushchita, you have to cut through the simanim. You can't have them be pulled out of place or knocked out of place when you're shechting them. Or because of the nature of the chicken, when it gets angry, when it plants its nails in the ground, that somehow it moves the simanim. For whatever reason, this is problematic and therefore he recommends when you're shechting that you either have it up in the air, when you're shechting it so it can't plant its claws into the ground, or press it hard into the ground or bury its legs into the ground so it can't do that. Alright. Cannot birth an animal on Yom Tov. But you can help it. You can birth a woman on Shabbat. You're allowed to call her a midwife, a birthing coach from wherever they are. And of course, you can violate Shabbat to help out a woman who's giving birth. And you're allowed to tie the umbilical cord. Not only can you tie the umbilical cord, you can actually cut the umbilical cord. And any needs for Brit Milan we're doing on Shabbat, which is the precursor to the next parak, which is Rabbi Ezra de Mila, where we're going to deal with the issues of Mila. Ketan Nisa'adin. What does it mean that you can help birth an animal? You can hold the baby that's coming out, the fetus that's emerging, you can hold it so it doesn't fall onto the ground. You can press on the sides of the animal in order that the fetus will emerge. Tanya Kavati the Rabbi Yehuda. We have a brighter that supports Rabbi Yehuda's understanding. Ketzad Misa'adin. What does it mean that you can help the animal birth? You're allowed to hold the fetus, the young animal that's being born, in order that it doesn't fall to the ground. You're allowed to breathe, uh, blow air into its nose, so that it clears the mucus from the nose so that it's able to breathe. And you can direct it to nurse from its mother. So that in order that it nurses, so you can help the animal along in order to help it to survive and help it to live. Kosher animals, we used to help the mother have mercy on her child so that she would take care of the child. What they used to do? They used to take a ball, clump of salt, and stick it inside of the womb of the animal. So she remember the pain of giving birth to Trachem Alav. And then she'll have mercy on this child. What seems to be here is that the mother is no longer nursing or taking care of the child. And because of that, this young animal is now in trouble because its mother is not taking care of it. So what we're doing on Shabbat is we're encouraging the mother to re-engage with the young animal in order that it will survive. 
So one of the ways is to engage the mother by putting the salt into the womb. Rashi says that they take the placenta or the afterbirth and they soak it in water. And then they take that water and they sprinkle it on the young animal. Because then the mother will smell it. She'll smell it. And that will cause her to re-engage with this young animal. It's only true by kosher animals. By non-kosher animals, we don't do this. Non-kosher animals never distance their children, meaning that they're always engaged with their children. If they do distance the child, they will not bring it back. No matter what you do, in order to encourage it to re-engage with this young animal, it will not do it. So since it's only useful by the kosher animals, Therefore, we permitted this, doing these items on Shabbat in order to ensure the survival of the young animal. It says over there that you can help the woman give birth and you can call a midwife to come in order to help her. And then it says you can violate the Shabbat. What does that come to include? Meaning that you already said that you can be me'alate, you can help her birth, and that you can call... A midwife from far away, meaning that we already said you can violate the Shabbat and take care of this woman. So why do we make a general statement, Mechalina Leta Shabbat? What does that add here? So that's If she says, I want a candle there, I want light there, then you can light a candle for her. If she needs oil, she can bring it on her hand. Again, this is not the normal way to carry shemen. Even though you bring it through the Rishut Arabim. If it does not enough oil by bringing it in the hand, maybe she can put it into her hair and then take it out of her hair. If it's not enough oil by bringing it through her hair, maybe she can bring it in a utensil. So Amar Amar wants to understand this. If she needs a candle, then whoever's with her can light her candle. Amar says, Pshita. What do you mean? Of course. If this is one of the needs of this woman who's giving birth, then of course you can light the candle. Why would you think otherwise? It's a blind woman who's giving birth. And therefore lighting the candle is going to make no difference for this woman. I would have thought giving to Lechazia since it makes no difference for the woman who's giving birth, that would be a sur. If she asked for a candle, that would be a sur. Kamash Milan, Iduve Meitav Dato. That it puts her at ease, it settles her mind. Savra, she thinks, She says, if the candle is lit, then the women that are helping her out, they will be able to see what her needs are and to take care of her. So because that gives her yeshuvadat, because that puts her at ease, you're allowed to violate the Shabbat. Even though it has no direct benefit for her, the simple benefit of the psychological benefit of putting her at ease is allowed on Shabbat in order to help her through this difficult process of birthing. And this is one of the big heterim with regards to being mechadal Shabbat for a woman. So for instance, a husband on Shabbat, when the woman has to go to the hospital, technically the husband should not be allowed to violate Shabbat. He's not the one in danger, he's not the one in need. So you have to send his wife to the hospital because she is the one b'sakana, and therefore you're allowed to violate the Shabbat for her. But what right do we have to violate the Shabbat for the husband? The answer is, if her husband coming along with her puts her at ease, then we allow the husband to go, because that's part of what you're allowed to be mechalel Shabbat for the psychological welfare of the woman who is giving birth. So if that includes her husband coming, 
or anything else that it includes, then we do it or we violate the Shabbat for the woman because anything that puts her at ease is part of what you're allowed to violate the Shabbat for. So if her husband coming along with her puts her at ease, then the husband can go. If her husband coming along with her makes the situation worse or more nervous, then obviously the husband would not be allowed to come and he could not violate the Shabbat for the husband to be there with the woman. If she needed oil. So typically, Mishum Shita. Remember, wants to understand this. You said before that you bring the oil in a or through a shinoi. So we're doing it in a different way. So first possibility is that you bring it in your hand. The other possibility was that you bring it in your hair and then you bring it in a cleat. Mar says, I don't know what you're doing because you've now avoided the problem of the Easter Doraito of carrying because you're doing Kalachayad or through a shinoi. But you now run into the problem of the Iser Doraita of Schita, of squeezing the oil out. Because when she puts the oil in her hair, when she gets to the destination, she's going to have to squeeze the oil out of her hair to get the oil. And that'll be Schita on Shabbat. So you just traded one Iser Malacha Doraita for another one. So why does that help out? So Rabbi Rabbi Yosef, Dharma Schita B'Seyar. So Rabbi Rabbi Yosef say that's because the nature of hair is that you can't do Schita on hair. You can't squeeze out liquids from a hair because the hair is not absorbent. When the oil or whatever is there is absorbed, it's not absorbed into the hair. It sits between the hair. It sits on top of the hair because it's kashe, it's hard, the hair, and it's not absorbent. And therefore, there's no concept of sfita by the hair. So that's one answer. So that's why there's no malacha doraita. Ravashi says that even if you want to say there is Chita B'Seyar, when the Brayta here says that you bring it through the hair, it doesn't mean inner hair. It means that you put the glee utensil into her hair. She ties the utensil into her hair and carries it that way. Because as much as possible we can change from the normal way to do this, we do. So even though you're allowed and there's a dispensation to violate the Shabbat, nevertheless, even when we're violating the Shabbat, we try to minimize the amount of violation of Shabbat. If you do a derech shinoi, then you might be only in problem with If you do a derech shinoi, you'll also remember that Shabbat. And there are reasons to do it in a unnatural manner and not the normal way because it both reduces the Yisur but also reminds one that we're still dealing with Shabbat. Obviously, if it's time sensitive or by doing it in these manners it would cause a danger to the woman, then when we say just do it straight, you don't ask questions, we don't have any hesitations about violating the Shabbat directly in order to take care of the woman. As long as the womb is still open, as long as the woman is still, quote-unquote, in the birthing process, then whether she says she needs something or doesn't need something, we're mechal the Shabbat and we take care of her. Meaning if other people who are standing there say that she needs this, we take care of her and we do everything she needs, we're mechal the Shabbat. Once the womb is closed, whether she says I need it or doesn't need it, then we're not mechalal Shabbat for her. Ravashi matnihochi. That's the way Ravashi taught it. Marzutra matnihochi. Marzutra says it in this manner, which is something that seems to make a little more sense, which is Amravyu Damar Shmo Chaya. As long as her womb is open, ben amra tzrichani, ben amra ain't tzrichani. Whether she says, I need something or doesn't need something, we take care of her. Whether she says she needs it, whether the outside or third party says she needs it, we're mechalal shabbat. Nistama kever. Once the womb is closed, amra tzrichani, 
If she says she needs something, we do it for her, because we take care of her. She says she needs it, she is the closest to the situation, and we listen to her. On the other hand, if she does not say she needs it, so the Gemara concludes here that his formulation is the Kula, on the other hand, Ravashi's formulation is the Chumra, and Hilchukah Deman, who's the Lacha like? Amalei Alachukah Marzutra. The Alach is like Marzutra because it's Suffolk Nefashot. Whenever we deal with Suffolk Nefashot, Lehakel. This is a very important principle. Whenever we do a Suffolk Bikuach Nefesh, we always go Lekula. And that's a Din Doraita. It's a Din Doraita that when you have a Suffolk Din in Bikuach Nefesh, a Suffolk Din Nefashot, that we go Lekula. So whenever we're dealing with things that deal with Shabbat, you have their attention between Shabbat, which is an Iser Doraita, and you have Pikuach Nefesh. So over there, the Gemara says in other places that we ask the Talmidei Chachamim to violate the Shabbat when there's Pikuach Nefesh, in order to show the people that when it comes to Pikuach Nefesh, Pikuach Nefesh trumps Shabbat, and because when we have a suffix in Pikuach Nefesh, you go the Kula, then even when there's any questions, we violate the Shabbat in order to protect life and to take care of the individual that needs help. Tosfot over here makes another interesting note, which is that the Gemara in Yoma says that in order for us to violate Yom HaKippurim and allow a woman to eat, that we need a medical expert there as well. We need confirmation of the woman's need to eat on Yom Kippur. Yet over here, the Gemara says, anything lamentive data, anything that puts her at ease, takes care of her psychological needs, then we take care of her and we do it right away. We don't ask for outside assistance, outside advice. What's the difference? The Tosafot says something very interesting here. He says, the Tosfot says over here, a woman or a woman who is pregnant or giving birth can be in more danger from her psychological well-being than she can be in danger from not eating or being hungry. So the fasting or not eating on Yom HaKippurim is less dangerous than the problem that could arise from the woman being in fear or her losing her psychological well-being. Again, we saw this earlier in the Masech, the Gaza Tosafot, here a reiteration of this concept that the mental well-being is just as important, but over here, more important than the physical well-being of the individual. Over here, we're willing to violate the Shabbat without any outside advice, without any experts, in order to ensure the psychological well-being of the woman, the metem dato, just to keep her at ease. On the other hand, when it comes to her physical needs, when it comes to Yom HaKippurim and eating, over there we require outside advice, we require confirmation that she really needs to eat, because that's only has to do with the physical well-being. And over there, the assessment is, according to most chachamim, most rofim, you have to check Every woman is different, but in general is that if you fast on Yom HaKippurim, that it will not endanger the fetus whatsoever, and that there really is no sakana to the woman. It does sometimes trigger birthing, and that's why many women who are at the end of her pregnancy, if they fast on Yom Kippur, end up giving birth on Yom HaKippurim. But in general, there is no danger, and the chance of danger is much less. And so therefore, Tosafot creates that distinction between the psychological well-being of the woman versus the physical well-being of the woman. Okay, we'll stop over here.